Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Some of the top news in the world of global economics now and global finance. Investors may be ignoring the risk that financial conditions could tighten sharply and send tremors through the global economy. This all according to the International Monetary Fund, who warned that overall market participants appear complacent about the risk of a sharp tightening of financial conditions. Joining us to discuss, I'm pleased to say this morning, in our studio here in New York is Sebastian Malaby, CFR Senior Fellow for International Economics. Good morning to you, Sebastian. Great to be with you. So let's get to that line from the IMF. Do you think investors are underappreciating the risk that financial conditions could tighten and what that could mean for the global economy? If we focus on the US, I don't think that's true right now, because when you've got growth at 4%, that can mask a lot of financial fragility. But if you project forward and you say, okay, this fiscal stimulus from the tax cut in December is going to be wearing off uh, next year and into 2020, by which time the Fed will have hiked a little bit more, and you've got a very fragile corporate credit situation. It's that interaction between the likely growth slowdown in 2020 and a highly leveraged corporate credit uh, picture. That's what worries me. Even if you didn't get a recession in 2020 because of the wearing off of the fiscal stimulus and you just had a growth recession, in other words, growth down at 1%, that's enough to start kicking default rates up and, and, yeah. and, and, and credit could react. Badly. It's almost non-austerity. Let's review this. I think this is important back eight, 10 years. What do we learn about British austerity or Germanic austerity or austerity austerity? What was the lesson learned? Well, first of all, it produced populism. Um, Small detail. Uh, yeah, uh, which is <laughs> quite a big detail. Um, and second of all, it didn't really drive debt to GDP down much. Um, and so it's a struggle. You really need... Uh, growth to be generated by um, productivity changes, which means technology and so forth. And we don't have a magic wand for that. Um, so I think those are some of the lessons. The trend overwhelmingly for developed economies has been for debt to GDP to climb throughout the last 10 years, Sebastian. I just wonder to what extent this sort of curtails some of our abilities to sort of respond to the next downturn, whether it be financial or economic, across Europe and the United States. Yeah, I think that's a profound issue. That last time around in 2008, there was enormous ammunition to respond, both in terms of fiscal stimulus and in terms of enormous monetary intervention. If you think about the next time, there are different constraints in Europe and the US, but they're big in both cases. In Europe, the issue is that you might have a different central bank chief, not Mario Draghi, but somebody more kind of of a northern European cautious persuasion. Could be Jens Weidmann of Germany, could be somebody else. Um, and secondly, on the other side of the table from the central bank in Europe, there might not be Mario Monti, who was a responsible technocratic Italian leader. There might be the kind of populist leaders that you have right now in Italy. And that would change the equation. Sebastian, when you think about the constraints, though, at least here in the United States, there is some spare capacity in monetary policy to respond to a financial or economic downturn. In Europe, that does not exist, both in fiscal, um, both in monetary policy. And also, I think something that doesn't get a lot of discussion is the regulatory response. In 2008, 2009, it was every country for themselves, bail out the banks. It's going to be very different if we have a banking crisis in Europe again. The ability of some of these countries to actually do what they did last time 
It's just not going to be there, is it? Yeah, and that's fundamentally why I worry more about Europe and particularly a flashpoint like Italy than I do about the US. I mean, in the US, there's a legitimate debate about the way that the Dodd-Frank reforms curtailed the Fed's ability to act as lender of last resort. But hopefully, um, a big dose of monetary easing combined with further fiscal stimulus, if you really had to do it, uh, is something the US can get away with because of the dollar's reserve currency status in the world. Yeah. You can issue more debt. I mean, that's a really important point. In my conversation with Madame Lagarde, this came up, the power of Asia, to finally move the exorbitant privilege over to China. I mean, that's a backstory in Bali as well. But through all of this, Sebastian, and frankly, through all of your writings, we go back to, as you started to staying, and this idea there is something special, the dollar's ascendant. Do you see any change in that? No, I see absolutely zero <clears throat> prospect you. of changing that. I and, think the dollar's yeah. centrality in the global system has gone yeah. up, not down, since 2008. And, and, and John, this is so important from Barry Eichengreen of Berkeley and from Joseph Nye of Harvard. They, they agree with Mr. Malaby. But there is a real debate this about is, this now. A real debate there's a debate about it, but a lot of, of people that... They're just saying no way. Ray Dalio has weighed in on that debate as well, quite recently as well, Sebastian. And I just wonder whether the the deficit actually matters with this in mind. If we go from 5% to 10% here in the United States, do we just assume it keeps getting funded? Yes, I think we do. I mean, the reason is that um, we ran an experiment in 2008-2009 where the Chinese central bank governor put on the website a sort of declaration of trying to make the renminbi international, trying to make the renminbi a global currency. You know, 10 years later, has the dollar been dethroned? No, it's actually more dominant. Why is it more dominant? It's because fundamentally, uh, countries around the world, and especially corporates, want to issue debt in dollars. And if your corporate sector has lots of dollar debt, the central bank needs to protect itself by having dollar reserves. And that isn't changing. And so central banks will hold dollars and private wealth managers will hold dollars because the markets are deep and liquid and they have rule of law and because that's what the liability is in. So if you're trying to cover against a run on your banks or on your corporates, you need dollars as your safeguard. Look at the use of dollar swaps after the 2008 crisis. Everybody was screaming for dollars. So I think people are going to want to hold dollars, and that gives enormous rope with which the U.S. can continue to kind of hang itself and strangle itself in terms of budget deficits. Is that more true in a period of risk aversion? Are we still going to see this situation where it becomes by treasuries, by the U.S. dollar, when we go through a sustained period of risk aversion? Well, I mean, that's exactly the paradox. You know, the U.S. can create a financial crisis in 08, and everybody's response is they want to hold more dollars. And I don't think that's going away. I think the U.S. can be irresponsible, create, uh, you know, some kind of panic, and the response will be, we want the U.S. Mm -hmm. currency. It's ironic, but it's the truth. Sebastian Malaby, thank you so much, and I uh, really can't say enough about a careful read of Mr. Malaby's article in the Atlantic magazine on growth and the latest Nobel Prize winner, Paul Romer of Stanford. Quieter markets today. We really like, you can almost truncate back the data checks. Brazilian Rail 3.71 yet to trade today around that election. And, and John, I would suggest we've been exceptionally Asian-centric today with Bali, yep. IMF, all the China news. And of course, the guests we've had, Lord Patton, uh, uh, the former governor of Hong Kong and Sebastian Malaby and such. You know what? Europe. 
And there's, I'm sorry, in the crush of the news flow, there's a lot going on in Europe right now. And I'm sorry, it all centers back to this turmoil over populism, migration and such. I thought the comments from Matteo Salvini were absolutely amazing. Like, like essentially, unstable. Essentially, like, like, essentially telling the market, here's the line in the sand. It's 400 yeah, exactly. basis points over Germany. And we don't think you're going there which I just think is staggering. That is the 101 of how not to communicate yeah. with financial markets at a time when you are going through some serious stress. Um, I want to bring in Klaus Verstessen, Pantheon Macroeconomics Chief Eurozone Economist, to weigh in. Klaus, what did you think of those remarks from the Deputy Prime Minister in Italy? Oh, look, Jonathan, I mean, you had the nail on that. I completely agree. This is really, really bad. I mean, right now, Italian politicians are picking fights with everyone, and so even though you and I could sit here and say, look, we could sit here and talk about, you know, you have a current account surplus, you have a primary surplus. This is not 2012. It's not the macroeconomics are much better. But I mean, at the moment, seriously, with these kind of comments coming out, you know, the market is just going to punish them over and over again. And, and it's not clear to me how and how and why they step back. I mean, cause he, he also said something like, well, when we hit 400 basis points, you know, we're going to take actions. Oh, who? The ECB? Nah, this is, we're in a very bad equilibrium at the moment. I think we're going to snap out of it eventually, uh, but at the moment, it's, it's difficult. It's well, let's, really difficult. Let's talk about what 400 basis points actually is. It's Greece. That's where Greece trades, yeah, 400 yeah. basis yeah. points over Germany. Um, do you think it could get that bad, Klaus, before it gets better? Well, I mean, I think you know. Once I think I, I, I agree. I mean, I think we have to we have to go with with the with the sort of the, the tenor of, of of your first comment, namely that once you give a market something to aim for, they might get that. Now, I think that's a massive mispricing. Italian bond yields currently, bond markets currently are mispriced. I mean, two-year yields shouldn't be above one percent, um, and and certainly I don't think ten-year yields should be should be as high as they are. But it's it's almost like they're welcoming it, right? Politicians, it's, it's as yeah. if we're in a situation now where where the more they push, and the, the more they think that it bolsters their domestic political capital, so it's like they like it's like they welcome it. Right. That is not a good idea. Plus, uh, we, with the bond we, market. we had a wonderful magisterial conversation yesterday with Giannis Varoufakis, who's got a nodding mm-hmm. acquaintance with crisis in real time, and particularly in negotiating with Germany, the Netherlands, and the, uh, France, the other core countries. And one of our basic themes was Greece has got to be different than Italy. And he was fascinating about how Italy could mess this up. From a Pantheon economics basis, do they have the structure in Italy not to mess this up? The institutional linkages of politics, economics, society and their banking system is italy not greece um no italy is not greece and i think in some sense mr varfakis he he was right when he said that what they should do is to use the fact that italy is the third biggest economy in the eurozone so they they pull some weight in terms of the rules but obviously they've jettisoned all that by now so now unfortunately we are in an equilibrium where you know you play tit for tat with the with the commission the ecb has already abandoned you because you know they can't help you so now there's a risk that you know this escalates i mean what i will say about the italy is that you know the macroeconomics are just much better right? i mean it's like this is not we should not this 
is not a stable equilibrium from a macroeconomic perspective. We should not get here, right? 2.4% in 2019, you have a primary surplus of 1.5. You are growing and unemployment is falling. Your external accounts are in surplus. I mean, this should not be as bad. But I mean, once we're in this overshooting environment, you know, who knows, right? So, and then, and the next shooter drop will be the rating agencies. They will come in yep. and some of them will downgrade it to be. Classes, I mean, for it's, sure. It's so frustrating um, from the outside looking in when you see the European officials and the Italian government essentially arguing over tens of basis points, literally about 50 basis points in a budget deficit and probably not even. This is what the argument essentially comes down to, Klaus. Yeah, and, they're, yeah. and they're risking yeah. another crisis for it. Is it worth it? Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's not worth it. And, and you know, you, some of the blame has to has to put be, be at the EU as well. I mean, it, it's odd, right, that every time we have one of these negotiations between a southern European country and the EU, it always ends up like this. And there's no reason. And by the way, the Italian people will pay, right? Because, I mean, let's just, let's just run through the economics here. This will start to hurt next year with a lag. Like you have two-year yields going to 1.5 percent, rates will go up with a lag. Bank rates, bank loan rates. Of course they will. This is like this is just 101. We know this. In the first half of next year, Italy Italy could be close to recession if this continues because growth is already very low. I mean, it's just a matter of time before okay. forecasters make that conclusion. So, how does Mr. Draghi respond to this? We have an historic headline out of the Bloomberg that they're going to keep mm-hmm. rates where they are until I don't know on the edge of, of freezing over. I guess, late summer of next year. Can that be derailed by this tumult in Italy? No. Uh, well, the rates may be, not QE, but yeah, no, fair enough. The rates next year, obviously, yes. I mean, in, in some sense, if Italy falls really, if the Italian economy really takes a knock on the basis of this, this is obviously going to feed back through to the ECB's reaction function. Growth is going to be lower. So, yeah, that, that, that could feed through. Uh, but then again, we're playing for time here. You know, we, we don't have to have that discussion until at some point in the first half of next year. But no, no, QE is ending. And at the moment, the ECB has been forced into a corner, as it did with Greece, in the sense that when you have a, a face-off like this between the EU and, and, and a government, the ECB just has to kick back from the table and say, Listen, well, Klaus, it. I think I some mean, people would also argue that the ECB have put themselves in a corner and they did it several years ago under Jean-Claude Trichet when they were responsible to some extent to introduce redenomination risk into this market because they didn't behave like a normal central bank. Are they going to continue to behave like a normal central bank now? Well, I mean, I think, I, no, I, I see your point. I mean, the, that, that, um, that big, um, that, 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 that rate hike. But I mean, what the ECB can do, right, what the ECB can do is the ECB can help the Italian bond market if there's an actual mispricing. But if that mispricing is because Italy is flirting with the idea of leaving the Eurozone, or if markets believe that, That's true. well, I mean, you're, you're gone. I mean, then you don't have the ECB anymore, by definition when you leave the Eurozone. So one, the fact that we still have this debate, which is incredible to me, that just means that, that the ECB is, is really... I mean, listen, the ECB should come in hard on Italian two-year yields, in my view. They should just smack that down. It is a, a violation of the ECB's forward guidance. Yeah. It, well, it, it has, it, the Italian two-year yields has no business being 1.5%. But there, there are two Eurozone crisis hangovers, Sorry. Klaus, as you know. There are two Eurozone crisis hangovers that still exist today. And one is the doom yep. loop between the banks and the sovereigns. Hasn't gone away. You see it in Italy. The other for me is that Italian peripheries and just peripheries in general, sovereign debt in Spain and Italy, Portugal, Greece, still trades like credit. And to what degree, when it trades like credit, does that curtail the populist's ability to really take this fight and have this fight for a sustained period of time? 
No, no, it does. It, in, in some sense, that, I, I, that again, really is a really good point. The fact that the bonds trade like credit, obviously, in some sense, empowers the EU and empowers the ECB to just, oh, I let them run. Oh, yeah, we'll see how far they get. Because at the end of the day, they end up with, uh, with having to pay the price. And I mean, I'm very clear in my base case. If we start to see growth slowing and bank loan and variable mm-hmm. mortgage rates starting to, to go up, let's see how the polls do in the first half of next year for Salvini and De Meyer, right? Yeah. Klaus, thank you so much. Klaus Fistian with Pantheon. Really great. Really insight. good update there. With us right now, a, a, a gentleman that certainly within banking and finance and banking legislation needs little introduction. Michael Mayo is uh, this week at Wells Fargo as well. Before we get to banking earnings and all that, HR4105 is an attempt to bring Mike Mayo's sensibility to Washington. What is it and is it going to work? So this is HR4015, the Corporate Governance Reform Act. So what do you think? Also known as the Mayo Act. Well, it's the Anti-Mayo Act. Yeah, okay. This is the Corporate Governance Reform. Having covered the banking industry for the last three decades, seeing the abuses that have taken place. As you know, Tom, I've written about this in my book. Excuse me, whoa, 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 whoa. You've been fired over this. Continue. Exactly. And um, I testified to Congress over this. So if you hear Corporate Governance Reform Act. Sounds great. I have great ideas for this, but what this act would do is it's cracking down on those advisors that advise shareholders on how to vote. And so the ISS and all that. So it's yeah. proxy advisors. Yeah. It's institutional shareholder services, Glass Lewis, Egan Jones, a couple other small ones. And what they do is they advise shareholders yeah, on how too to busy. vote yeah. on the main questions for every annual meeting. And now, the, um, you know, the, this bill says we're going to crack down these proxy advisors. We're going to make because it- that's what the big banks want, right? Well, I'm not, I'm not saying big banks or other banks. I'm just saying for me, as someone who represents shareholders, I've done that for the banks, and this applies to all industries, what this would require is that the proxy advisors, before they publish their research, they'd have to show that research to the companies. And the companies could say, hey, this isn't quite right. And right. the companies still agree, then the company view would be listed alongside the views of the proxy advisors. Well, let's advisors. cut to the chase. Is this act good for Jamie Dimon? Well, you know, I say, I change it around. I say, does this pass the Citigroup test? So what do you mean by that? Well, by, by that, I mean, so if a proxy advisor wants to conduct research mm-hmm. talking about Citigroup's pay, then they'd have to check with Citigroup. If they want to conduct research saying we should separate the CEO and chairman job, right. they'd have to show that to Citigroup. If they say we want to have a shareholder value committee, again, these are already shareholder proposals that they're giving recommendations on. So if they want to give recommendations to this, they have to show their research. So for Citigroup, for the last two decades, the CEOs over two decades have gotten paid for um, – Sorry, uh, have gotten paid an average of twenty million dollars a year, four hundred million dollars, yeah, you know. while the stock's gone down. While the stock's gone down by seventy percent at a yeah. time when the S and P's gone up two to threefold. So, you know, if if ISS or Glass Lewis wants to write about the pay at Citigroup, they'd have to show that research yeah. to okay. Citigroup before doing it. This this is 
the anti-Mike Mayo okay. act, by all means. Okay, John Farrell's squirming over we, there. We gave him a they lot don't of time. do this in England. We gave him a lot of time to go on a bit of a rant, didn't we? I, well, but he's that's okay. I, it's Mike, Mike Mayo's a friend of ours. Well, he can do that. But, but this, you know, <laughs> if I'm at Egan Jones, do I need to show my research to whatever bank before Mike I Mike Mayo, can we, can we talk about the earnings that come this week? Um, a bit of a rant there about some of what is going on down in Washington, D.C. with the regulation. Still bullish city. Citigroup is our number one idea. Uh, you have... I think that the main course for Citi and all the banks should be decent. I mean, you have good cost control, good credit, good cath return. If there's a concern out there, it's that you don't get that dessert, the extras of, you know, extra margin increase, extra loan growth, extra capital markets, the extra animal spirits that should come after the tax cuts. I prefer having a little bit less revenues today and much more sustainable growth. In a way, it's the, the opposite of before the financial crisis when people celebrated revenue growth only for banks to get hurt later now you have a little bit less revenue growth but it's sustainable you're really bullish on the structural story for banks in america can you just build on that framework because we've got a bit of time with you this morning and then we can get deeper into some of the stuff you're concerned about just why is the structural story for banks right now so favorable for them longer term with a much longer time horizon here well i appreciate that question there's too much short-termism and so when we look at the banks despite you know some, some cyclical softness you have um the cost structure of banks it's, you're reaching a 25-year structural breakout for the benefits of scale. It was 1994 when U.S. banks were first allowed to expand nationally. You're seeing the benefit of the, the scale now. You're seeing a structural reduction in risk. That doesn't mean loan losses aren't going higher. That doesn't mean there won't be problems, but you've seen incredible deleveraging and de-risking. And so we think while losses will go higher, they won't go as high as the yeah. past. And then lastly, capital return. You have <clears throat> record capital return at the bank. So I guess you could you know, well, call, call this the three C's, credit, uh, costs, oh, and capital. Very good, that sounds like his new research report. Michael Mayo with us. <laughs> Let's talk about perhaps detail or lack thereof when it comes to some kind of a divorce settlement between the United Kingdom yeah. and the European Union. Sterling up. Yes, perhaps a deal in the making. Amanda Sloat, Brookings Institution Senior Fellow in Foreign Policy, Center on the United States and Europe. Amanda Sloat, what do you know about a potential deal? Well, all eyes are certainly on London and Brussels at the moment. Uh, next week, there's a meeting of the European Council, which is all the leaders of the European Union, including the British Prime Minister. Uh, the hope had been that next week's meeting was when a Brexit deal was going to be finalized. People are increasingly pessimistic that it may not be finalized next week, but may require another special session in November to wrap things up. What are the specific sticking points? Is it still the border with Northern, and, uh, Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic? Yes, absolutely. Uh, a lot of people have been coming out and saying about 80 to 90 percent of the withdrawal agreement, the divorce settlement is complete, but the continued inability to determine how to handle the border with Ireland remains the major sticking point uh, and actually could still prevent a deal from ultimately being done. Now, there is a report that uh, David Davies, who is a member of parliament and has now stepped up an assault on Theresa May's Brexit plan, says that the conservatives, the Tories, would lose the next election, election unless Theresa May's exit plan is scrapped. Is that just politicking? 
Well, there's lots of politicking from all sides here. Uh, Theresa May has to get a budget through Parliament at the end of the month, and so some are threatening not to support the budget if they don't agree with her Brexit deal. Uh, She held snap elections after she became prime minister following the resignation of David Cameron, who lost the Brexit referendum. Uh, It was disastrous for her. She lost her majority in Parliament and is now dependent on the Democratic Unionist Party, which is the hardline unionist in Northern Ireland, and they are actually making it much more difficult for her to get a deal through Parliament as well. So lots of different political interests from lots of different political parties. And John Boehner had a way to do this under the U.S. system. Our Kitty Donaldson and Jessica Shankleman have a smart article, Amanda, today about how the prime minister has to go find labor votes. I think this is something our our American audience, and certainly I miss all the time. A, A party leader, a conservative party leader in this case, doesn't just wander over and get labor votes, do they? No, there's certainly a massive whip effort that's underway to try and get agreement. Uh, I think there's people within the Labor Party that were not supportive of the idea of Brexit, but they recognize that a no deal for the UK is going to be even more disastrous than uh, something that they might not fully support. So you raise yeah. a good point. There's a question of whether the UK and EU can reach agreement on a deal, but then the UK Parliament uh, uh, has to accept the deal, and so right. it's possible that this could fall apart at, at that point as okay. well. But, but the key thing for Americans, I think, is, is Prime Minister May, can she go get labor votes? And if she does it, does it is it political suicide? You know, I, I think there's, there's likely to be some sort of election after this anyway. Uh, You know, you've got lots of of churn over this. The problem for some of the labor supporters is labor is led by Jeremy Corbyn, who's a democratic socialist. And so one of the things that's keeping people in line is the idea that him as prime minister might be even worse than Theresa May as as prime minister. So with all of the jostling in the, the UK cabinet, with all of the unhappiness by David Davies and others, people have to be very cognizant of what the political alternative could end up being. Amanda, no matter what we describe today, something will happen by March of 2019, correct? Uh, Yes, something will happen. There either will be an agreement, uh, there will be no deal, and the UK will crash out of the EU and have to return to WTO rules. Or third, people are continuing to talk about whether you have snap elections, there's a continued push for a people's referendum, uh, but those things seem, seem less likely at this point. Okay. The reason I ask it in that way is that there is going to be lingering feelings on both sides of this issue, and many of these politicians are still going to be politicians. And I want you to focus, if you can, on Scotland for a second, because the word is that Nicola Sturgeon, the head of the Scottish Nationals Party, says this is going to make independence for Scotland unstoppable. I think you're absolutely right. This not only is having implications for the UK's relationship with the EU, but it's having domestic consequences across the UK. Uh, People in Scotland voted overwhelmingly not to go forward with Brexit. 62% of them wanted to stay within the EU. There was a referendum in Scotland on independence in 2014, which failed. uh, And there's been questions about whether or not this makes Scottish independence more likely. Uh, Opinion polls have not so far 
far shown a massive swing, but there certainly is a feeling that if Scotland gets a bad deal coming out of Brexit negotiations, particularly in terms of where powers from the EU that are being repatriated to the UK land, uh, it is possible that that sentiment could grow in Scotland for another independence referendum. Recently, we heard that Unilever has decided to maintain its headquarters or dual headquarters in the UK and in the Netherlands. Is that the exception that proves the rule that many companies are looking to leave the UK? I think a lot of companies have been caught in a really difficult position because even now, as you said, less than six months away from when Brexit happens, it's very unclear what a deal looks like. And so I think a lot of companies have taken the decision to hedge. And so for some of them, that has been to relocate their headquarters. For others, it has been to to open uh, multiple headquarters, keeping one in, in London and one in elsewhere. Uh, and so this is, is creating a tremendous amount of uncertainty yeah, for, yeah, for businesses. Yeah. Okay, you came out of Lansing, I get it. And then you went to the gorgiosity of Edinburgh, Scotland, right? I did. Well, that's why I asked her about Scotland. I know, but the bottom line is, is people want to live in Edinburgh, people want to live in London, right? Sure. The the, the real issue here for companies like Unilever is that's where people want to live, right? Sure, where people want to live, but I think also where they're able to to get uh, economic certainty on what the rules of of the road are going to look like. I mean, London certainly is going to remain a significant financial center, but there is so much uncertainty at the moment about what the future relationship between the UK and the EU looks like. Uh, What everybody's been negotiating right now is the divorce settlement. What they also need to come some ways towards uh, within the next couple of weeks and then hash out during this 21-month transition period after next March is what the future relationship between the UK and EU looks like. Do they have a free mm-hmm. trade agreement? Uh, does the UK follow EU customs rules, regulations rules? What what does that look like? Amanda, thank you so much. Amanda Sloat with Brookings on Brexit. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.